Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 183 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Bree, Locke's mom. Speaking to Bree today really gave me a sense of hope for the future. She talks about the devastation of losing her little boy, Locke, in a way that's very real and genuine, but now she is 14 years out. And it really gives me quite a bit of comfort just to talk to someone who's 14 years out and doing okay. She really does bring a sense of hope to other people, and she's doing some pretty amazing work in her home state of South Dakota. So I just know you will appreciate Bree and all that she has to say. I also want to bring up again that we are having the next live stream with Gwen this coming Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. So you can go on Facebook Live to the Always Andy's Mom Facebook page or to Gwen's Grief Guide Facebook page or to my YouTube page, which is also Always Andy's Mom. So any of those uh, will be ways that you can kind of go in and listen to that. We're going to be talking about the physical symptoms of grief and have a special guest on as well. So I know that will be useful to everyone to listen to. Um, One last thing, if you want to submit any questions for the Ask Me Anything episode, which I think we're going to do sometime in April now, just feel free to email Eric or me your questions. And I've talked about that before. So if you have questions for Eric, you email me, marciandandysmom.com. If you have questions for me, email Eric to eric at alwaysandysmom.com. So right now, I just want you to sit back and enjoy listening to Brie, Locks Mom. Thank you so much, Brie, for coming on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited to get to talk to you. Oh, I am so excited, too. And you come to us today from South Dakota. And so we've been talking a little South Dakota. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if I have mentioned this to my listeners before, but I lived in South Dakota for two years. And so Brie brought up a lot of stuff that I kind of totally forgotten. So that was a little fun to just catch up on all things South Dakota. But you are on the opposite side of the state that I was. I was on the east side of the state, and you were way over there on the west side, the beautiful part, actually, right near the Black Hills. That's what we argue, that the west side is, is the winner on the South Dakota competition. But <laughs> there's, there's the East River versus West River, and we've got the Black Hills, and that's hard to beat. There's no question it's the winner. It is hard to beat the Black Hills. It, they are just beautiful. So... Anyway, I do want, though, to talk to you about your son, Lachlan. So do you want to start out by just telling us a little bit about him? 
I love this part of what you do for the podcast. You know, that's, I just keep thinking, you know, so often it just turns into getting to, you know, talking about their death and the grief, but to be able to just like relive their life for a minute and just like talk about them is, uh-huh. is a gift that bereaved parents don't get very often. So I think you're right. I think it is a gift we don't get very often. So I love, love. That's my favorite part. Yeah. Too. So Locke was our mm-hmm. second little boy. He was just a mm-hmm. happy, content little little guy. He, interestingly, so our first, he was kind of a little peanut and barely hanging on to the bottom of the growth curve. And Locke was born and was two pounds bigger than his older brother at birth and continued to like run in about the 90th percentiles on the growth curve. So <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah, he had a great just open personality like he loved to watch what was going on around him he was happy to engage with anybody that wanted to engage with him I think you know some of my favorite memories of him are really those with with him and Weston our older son just playing together so my husband has a brother that's about 19 months Mm -hmm. older than he is and they grew up as best friends and so we always loved this idea of our of our kids being able to be close together in age and like building that friendship and yeah oh I remember one day in particular Locke was probably about four months old and he was sitting in one of those little inclined bouncy seats and I was cooking and listening to the boys Mm -hmm. behind me as they were just like playing and laughing with each other and I was like oh it's so sweet they're like interacting and playing together yeah my oldest was about two at the time and then I look over my shoulder and what's happening is my oldest is taking the top of that bouncy seat and pulling it down and then letting go and so like slingshotting him almost up out of the seat and then Locke would flop back and they would both laugh hysterically and he'd do it again and I was like oh my gosh okay like lesson learned just because they're laughing doesn't mean it's okay You know, that's the, oh yeah, that's a, a very memorable, like. That sort of reminds me of my boys, because they were about two years apart, and, you know, they were playing and laughing and seeming okay. Peter was sitting in one of those little, you know, uh-huh. seats that you put him in, and you've got, like, toys kind of all around him, and so he was, in, and it wasn't mobile or anything, it was just kind of sitting there, and Andy was kind of going back and forth, and all of a sudden I hear this, like, scream from Peter that he's crying. Oh, no. And I walk over there, and there is a trail of blood going down Peter's head. What happened? I was like, Andy, what happened? And he goes, Thomas got him. Well, they were, he was throwing a Thomas the Train engine, one of those little wooden Thomases, and he, he just clocked him right in the head, and I think the corner of the wood got him a little bit and he's bleeding like dude he's little he's not gonna catch the train please do not throw it that makes me think too so Locke had a scar on his eyebrow and what happened there is my husband was like airplaning our oldest one on his feet and Weston kind of flopped and like fell enough that Weston's tooth hit Locke's eyebrow and just like enough that it left a left a mark and the scar stayed (laughs) where'd that scar come from well (laughs) brothers that was a dad slash brother right right (laughs) welcome to the wrestling but yeah then so then you know the boys we lived in a new development and so the boys spent a lot of time just like standing at our picture window watching the trucks outside and 
oh Locke had a yeah just fun fun personality they would sit in the car and Weston would look over and just like say a boo like you know kind of a peekaboo sort of game and Locke would laugh and roll <laughs> with that right he had this, you know, a little bit of a sense of humor as much as a baby can have. We did not have a gate at the top of our stairs at that time. And so he knew that we would mm-hmm. like drop everything and dive across the room to keep him from falling down the stairs. So Locke would like crawl toward the stairs and then he'd turn and he'd look at you and just like wait to make eye contact and then smirk and then turn and dart toward the stairs as fast as he could go. <laughs> so we'd be left like you know sliding across the living room to grab him by the ankle before he fell down the stairs and then he'd laugh and you know he knew exactly what it was he was doing oh that's so funny oh he was he was just at that fun stage where they're starting to communicate and waving and starting to say like the first of their words and using some baby signs and he loved um animal sounds we had a little they had a jungle themed bedroom and he had a shelf um that had a bunch of stuffed animals on it and so oftentimes we'd pause at the doorway and make the sounds uh-huh. of all the animals and um yeah he was he was pulling up on the furniture oh, and, God. you know, just not too far from being able to walk. He loved his bath and we'd sit him up and he'd be happy, you know, kind of splash, splashing around, but then we'd, we'd lay him down and he uh-huh. would arms and legs just like start going as fast as they possibly could just like kicking and splashing in the water. And then he'd sit him up and he'd kind of stop and you'd lay him back down and arms and legs. It was like a, it was like a switch for his arms and legs that happened when you laid him down in the water. And- wow. Oh, what a fun, fun little guy. He was a rashy baby. So we had all kinds of, we called them lotions and potions. It was various like steroid creams and lotions that we coated him with every night after his bath. But um, that was another place he liked to play with us too. You know, we'd get him out and dry him off. And as soon as you'd let go, he would turn and crawl away as fast as he could. So then you're like chasing him down to try to get lotion and a diaper on him. And yeah. Yeah. So fun. So fun. Oh, we had a game that we called Skyscraper Baby. So our oldest at two was just like figuring out the stacking cups and figuring out how to stack them. And then Locke was right at the age where he just wanted to knock that stuff down. So we turned it into a game where the object of the game was for Weston to get all of the blocks, all of the cups stacked before Locke could make it across the room to knock them over. And (laughs) so just like it was a race to see who could who could get the job done first. (laughs) right exactly yes and i bet both of them won a fair amount yeah so you know just lots of little moments of joy that come with a baby and with the new relationships of siblings and yeah life was just kind of right right where we wanted it to be at that point in our lives right yeah right everything seemed just perfect it did yes yeah yeah Um, I had just started my first job. I'm a physician assistant working in general surgery. So I had started my first professional job. My husband was working through anesthesia school. Um, We were high school sweethearts. So we dreamed about, you know, kind of this life that we were just beginning to to live Mm -hmm. from the time we were 17. And so like all of the pieces were really just like coming together. Like we had dreamed of them to be. Right, right. And having your two boys and yeah, career (laughs) falling into place. And then everything changed, didn't it? And then, uh, and then everything changed. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to go on and talk about what happened then to Locke? 
So it was a Monday. It was the day after Mother's Day. That particular day, I had to be in the operating room early that morning. So my husband was bringing the boys to daycare, which a little backstory there. We had just had a nanny that had been with us that we had just learned was abusive, more verbally and neglect kinds of stuff more than than physical abuse so just kind of like trying to collect ourselves from that trauma really to think that your babies that aren't old enough to really communicate much have been have been experiencing that so we're just shifting to a new daycare so this was just this it was the second it was the first day of our second week at this brand new daycare but got up that morning and we were kind of in the bustle to get out the door. You know, I, I needed to race to work. Locke was still nursing, like you need to eat so I can go. And he wasn't really that interested. He just kept watching Weston run by and, you know, would stop. Cause how old was he at this point? Um, 10 and a half months. 10 10 and a half months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he just wasn't very focused on getting his breakfast in. And I finally like, okay, like I gotta go. Good luck. And ran out the door. And so that's, yeah, my husband dropped him off. Our oldest at two was still having a hard time with the transition to the new daycare. So it was, it was still, you know, tears and kind of peeling him away to be able to, to get out the door that day at work. It was a very busy practice, always focused on efficiency and how we can get the most things done in the least amount of time kind of thing. Um, And that particular day, the surgeon that I was working with needed to go to another hospital to do just some scopes where he, so he didn't need my help for that. So I had this kind of weird gap of a few hours. And in that time I thought, well, maybe I should go down to the daycare. I, I would leave West in there so he doesn't have to do the drop off twice, but I could go pick up Locke for a little bit. And, and then I talked myself out of it. We had a new medical student that was with us that day. And so I was thinking, oh, I'll just stay here and kind of show him around and get him oriented. And we had a big surgery that we were scheduled to do that afternoon that I hadn't done yet. And so like, oh, I'll just review some technique for that. And so, yeah, ended up talking myself out of going to the daycare. And then it was about 2.30 that afternoon. We were just getting ready to go scrub into the OR. And I got a phone call from the daycare. And as I pick it up, it wasn't one of the gals from the daycare, but it was the male owner's voice. And you could tell immediately that he was shaken. And he just said, he said, I need you to come to the daycare. Locke's not breathing and the EMTs are here. And we had just been finding out that Locke had some food allergies. So that was my first thought. Like maybe, maybe he ate something that he shouldn't have. And he said, no, all he had was the pears that you brought him this morning. I just need you to come to the daycare. Well, like, you know, like that's everything stops in that moment, you know, that's your brain stops working. Like in hindsight, I was like, okay, I was in the hospital. Why didn't I say, okay, I'll meet you in the ER in five minutes, like get here. Yeah. But he said he needed me to go to the daycare. So I left the poor med student standing there. I didn't say a word to this kid. I just darted down the stairwell that was next to me, ran like all of these moments. Like this is where those like traumatic memories start. And, you know, it's like you start thinking about those, they become so quickly, like not just something that you're remembering, but something that you like, you relive it. Yeah, you feel it. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So I had these like silly clogs, I call them silly now that's, you know, they're functional for the OR, but 
not functional when you're trying to run. So I had these clogs on my feet that kept like flopping around. And so I didn't feel like I could move as fast as I wanted to in these shoes. I wouldn't wear a pair of shoes like that for probably eight years after, after this day, just in case I needed to go fast anywhere. Got in my car and started heading toward the daycare. I called my husband and was, of course, just hysterical. He could hardly understand what I was saying. And so I had to like repeat a couple of times what it was that I was trying to say. And he still, I don't know that he still really got it, but like, okay, I just figured he needed to go to the daycare. I was driving down the, you know, the turning lane on the road, just trying to get around traffic. I was making my own lane. Yeah. Not a very safe way to, to drive. And then I ended up getting stopped at a stoplight while I watched a funeral procession cross in front of me. And it was like oh. this, like, oh my word, moment of just like dreadful foreshadowing, you know, like, yeah, as a medical provider, you know, like if, if your baby's not breathing and the EMTs are there, that it is not good. Yeah. And then to be forced to stop and watch that go by, it was excruciating. Yeah. So I finished, it was about a 20 minute drive from the hospital to the daycare. And as I pull up, there's kind of a little crest where you can just like come up over a hill and where you can first see the daycare and it's surrounded by emergency vehicles. There's flashing lights. You know, I get up there and the, there are cars blocking the entrances. So I just left my car in the, right in the road. I don't think I've enclosed the door behind me and ran up to the door while there was an officer that was outside the door and wouldn't let me go in like you know you're pleading like but I'm his mom I know you can't you can't go in I mean enough that I tried to get around him at these points you know you're not you're not really thinking clearly anymore this is all just like no hysteria yeah and I could tell pretty quickly that he was going to restrain me before he was going to let me in the door so then it just pacing outside he didn't really seem to know exactly what was happening he said he checked nobody inside really seemed to know exactly what was happening at some point my husband ended up showing up beside me and we waited out there for you know time becomes super weird in those moments and I don't I have no idea whether it was a few minutes or an hour I don't I really don't don't know felt like an eternity yeah and the longer it goes you know that's having participated in codes you know that's you know, without knowing. Mm-hmm. And then seeing the the flight team come out, it was, you know, it was guys that I knew from my ER rotations in school and just the way they, you know, their posture, their head was hung, you know, shaking their head. And, you know, about all I heard was there was, there was nothing we could do. And they <sighs> exchanged a little bit more with my husband, but like in that moment, it's like, it's almost like your soul separates from your body. Like I felt like I was outside myself in some weird way, like dropped to my knees and I was dry heaving. Like I was worried I was going to throw up on somebody's feet and like, what is happening to my body here? And like, it was just such a weird moment. I had this vague notion. There was some news crews there, you know, some emergency at a daycare, of course, you know, that's, it's not, surprising that they're showing up for things like that and then yeah just spent a little time outside the daycare decided then okay like what do we do next and called my mom um, who was a teacher out in the Black Hills so at this point in time when when Locke died we were East River so 400 miles from home and from where our 
our parents were and just like remembering so clearly for the first time like having to say out loud that Locke died and yeah. like yeah I like I couldn't even force myself to say it I think the first thing I said to her was mom can you come and she you know of course like well why you know like, like I can't leave in the middle of the day and drive 400 miles for and so then like being backed into the corner and having to to say it out loud was just unfathomable to to say that your child died this boy that you bounced on your lap that morning you know that's he was happy and healthy and fine and yeah you just can't wrap your head around it then he wasn't and it is just yeah it's yeah. it's unfathomable yeah. so, so hard to believe mm -hmm. that's even happening right you know we're we were sent so then we're waiting kind of waiting to go in the daycare so I thought yeah. and eventually then I don't know who it was that told us but they ended up taking Locke out the back door in an ambulance and he was already gone and en route to the hospital and they told us we wouldn't be able to see him until after his autopsy oh. and then just like sent us home <laughs> like what um, of course, so then our two-year-old was still there. He was, it was during nap yeah. time. So he was sleeping in another room. So, you know, I'm grateful that he was kind of oblivious to all of what was happening. You know, I remember him coming out still kind of blinking in the sun, just waking up from his nap as his eyes adjust. And, you know, it's the fire trucks out there and, you know, a two-year-old boy's dream. You know, he was all about all the cars and trucks at that point in his life. And, you know, the, the fireman invited him in to look around at the truck. And it was like this weird, like juxtaposition of having your toddler there excited about seeing the fire truck and these firemen, you know, yeah. just like doing what they can. And him having no idea why the fire truck was no. there. The fire truck was there because his life was, had just changed and he didn't even know. Right. Right. Yeah. And so then we went home and we had a priest that was called to come join us while we were at the daycare and oh god bless this poor man but he was new and he was young and he was I just felt terrible for him having to be there he was clearly uncomfortable and didn't know what to say or do and I didn't know what to say or do and so it just made for kind of just an extra like awkward because you didn't even know him interaction no no and so then he ended up coming home with us and then we get home and you've got a two-year-old that like, he has no idea what's going on. He just wants to play. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do this right now. And our dear neighbor was across the street mowing his yard. And so that's, I ended up bringing Weston over there. Like, I just need somebody else to watch him for a little while. And, and then again, you know, that's, he could tell by the look on my face, something was terribly wrong. And he's like, of course I'll watch him. Like what happened? And, you know, for that second time again, like being forced to say out loud that Locke died. It's just, yeah. it's, it's a gut punch, mm -hmm. you know, and then slowly people start, you know, kind of filtering in and family comes to join us. Fortunately, so we still were left with thinking we didn't know when we were going to get to see Locke and probably not for several days and probably not till after his autopsy is is what we were told. Yeah. And then I'm so grateful the surgeon that I worked with ended up using his connections in the hospital and the nurse that was charged in the ER that night had also lost a grandson 
just recently. And so between the two of them, I don't know all of the, all of what transpired to make it happen, but we were able to then go up later that evening. So it was about two 30 when I got that call. And I think it was seven ish when we were able to go up to the hospital and to spend a little time with Locke there. Oh, I'm so glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's it's a regret I have that I wasn't able to do that until after his autopsy. Yeah, so it's such yeah. an excruciating thing, you know, even then, you know, like as soon as we saw him, you, your instinct is to like to want to see them and to hold them and to like, you know, just mother the mother your baby. Yeah. Yeah. And the investigator that was in there at first was telling us that no, we couldn't I couldn't uncover him and I couldn't pick him up and I couldn't hold him. Um, and then same thing, there's some whispers at the back of the room and minds were changed and we were able to just like spend a little time holding him. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's, you never want to say something like that as a gift, but to, to be able to, to have those moments yeah. were, were an extraordinary piece of just kind of the transition, I think. Yeah in that you know we we were able to see him and and hold him even after his autopsy and at the funeral home but it wasn't the same then and I knew it wasn't going to be yeah so yeah just some some kind of treasured moments if you know if you can say that (laughs) right I know and it's hard to say it that way but on the other hand, it is. It is a little bit of a gift that you got a few moments, you know, just to hold him again. Because yeah. that, you know, it's hard when you don't get that. Yeah. It is hard. Yeah. We had another one of those. We ended up having him. So the coroner that was in, was on our side of the state, was actually out of town. And so they ended up sending him out to the Black Hills. So to what we would consider home, even though that's not where we're living yeah. for his autopsy, which then being that my husband was still in school, we weren't exactly sure where we were going to be settled long-term. And we knew that yeah. Spearfish would be home. You know, that's, we were high school sweethearts. And so, yeah, grew, grew up in the same place. Both of our parents were still there. So no matter where we ended up, that was going to be home in some sense or another. So we decided to have his funeral and burial there, which then, you know, ended up working out okay. And that he had to be transported across the state for his autopsy. And then we did his funeral there. But this team, we had Locke dressed up in his little like Christmas suit for the viewing kind of piece of his services but you know for a baby like you know all those cute little suits I always thought it was you know like when they're living too that's you know you've got babies with no neck and they've got this collar and this tie and this vest and the like jacket on top of it and it's just like so much like it uh like that doesn't look comfortable to be there forever and you know so much of our time that we spent with him you know being that we were working full time so much of it was in the evenings it was through bath time bedtime preparations getting him tucked in settled in and so we ended up deciding we wanted to change him into pajamas and like tuck him in before he was buried but that's something that my husband and I wanted to do and so it was the funeral like the people around us kind of supporting they were a little hesitant about that idea at first but then decided to let us go ahead and do it and they they set up a space in a back room in the church and they played his lullaby music that we played every night 
Yeah. Well, we, he's still even at 10 months old, like to be swaddled. So he was too long to tuck his feet in. Um, But we would still kind of wrap his arms up to kind of help him settle in at night. And so we were able to change him out of his suit and put him in some soft, fuzzy pajamas and like wrap him up and tuck him in one more time. That's beautiful too. And yeah, another one of those just like most like excruciating moments, but at the same time, something that I wouldn't change for anything. It was, it was such a gift to, to have that, that time and that last opportunity just to, to tuck him in one more time. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about having to do that autopsy. What did they determine anything from that then? And how long did it take? Because that's amazing how long those take. No, so his is painful. So, you know, then, of course, backstory that I get, he had been asleep on a crib mattress on the floor in the in the daycare. You know, of course, at 10 months old, he can roll over and sleep on his belly. That's, you know, he did that on his own. So he was, yeah. He was sleeping on his tummy and just had his face turned toward the wall. So it wasn't obvious to see color changes. There had been daycare staff in and out of the room. They recognized that he'd been taking a long nap, but he also had had a little bit of a cold, just, you know, kind of normal minor little cold. And so didn't think too much of it that, you know, he just must be sleeping off his cold. Um, And even they said there was a couple of times that there were other babies kind of crawling up on that mattress and they would kind of shoo him away to let him keep sleeping. And so he had actually probably been down for his nap for about four hours before somebody actually touched him. And they found that he had probably been gone for hours by the time it was recognized. Just so tragic. So yeah, in right in you know in his autopsy. So that's even even just knowing the story, I felt fairly confident that it was probably a SIDS like death, um, and which yeah. that's the autopsy mm-hmm. didn't show anything um, that would have been a cause of death. Yeah. So that's really what SIDS is is just it's a diagnosis of exclusion where we don't have any good explanation, and so then it's labeled yeah as SIDS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, so awful. Yeah. It's, it changes, you know, it just like throws your whole world into a tailspin. And, you know, some 26 year old kid, you know, just starting my grown up life, my experience with prior loss had been pretty limited. Um, you know, my, my grandparents, mm-hmm. I had a grandma that I was close, closer to that died when I was a freshman in college. But really, other than that, you know, my experiences with loss were so limited. Right. Mm -hmm. I just had no, no room for that in my world. And so to just have everything turned upside down like that, like, I remember one moment, just even the afternoon that he died shortly after we were at home, just like sitting on my couch, thinking like, holy, like, this has just changed everything about me and about my world. Like, I can't even begin to fathom what that's going to look like for now. But I know that I will never be the same from this moment on. Right, right. And you won't. No, and you haven't been. no. Because mm-hmm. now how many years has it been? 14 years since he died. So he would be 15 now. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to think of that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. you know, I think back to those, you know, those first moments of days and well, I mean, 
weeks, years <laughs> where just like getting through every single yeah. moment was excruciating and yeah. like just being crushed by the idea. Like I have to live for the next, like, who knows, maybe 60 years like this. Like, yes, I, I don't feel like I can make it through today. Like it's unfathomable to think that I could have to live the rest of my life like this. It is, it's just unbelievably painful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you bring that up because that's an excellent point. You know, we just talked about this in my support group last night about how you just can't even imagine having to live years and even decades without your child. It's just like, I can't even think of next week, let alone next month or next year. I mean, the prospect of years and decades horrible there was such a despair that came with that like to think that I'm gonna feel like this for 60 years like nobody wants to live like that right and and yeah that's like it's really it can be a quick spiral into just feelings of despair what finally kind of helped me is just like pulling back and like okay I don't have to do 60 years right now like all I have to do is live through this next moment like what do I need to do next like okay I've probably need to go take a shower like can I take a shower probably barely but I can do that yeah and you know for so long you live just like moment by moment by moment I remember being really frustrated with people so I didn't go back to work right away I had like generous people from all over the hospital donated their vacation hours to me so I ended up with like three months worth of vacation hours that were just donated which gave me time just to like not feel any pressure that I had to go back. I was struggling before that, even with a lot of mom guilt, feeling like I was working way more than I wanted to for what my family needed. But then I just had a lot of people asking me like, well, when are you going to go back to work or anything that was planning anything more than like the very next moment, you know, what are you going to eat for supper? Like, I don't, I don't know. I can't. (laughs) I can't think that far ahead. (laughs) Like That's like an, that's like an hour from now, and I probably won't need that either. Six. You know, like then I maybe can have an idea. The physical symptoms of grief were shocking to me. Like I remember, even in PA school, like yeah. touching on a brief lecture about how physical grief can be, and then and then you move on. But to to be in a space where like it was painful to eat and like it made me nauseous and it made me feel worse to eat. And of course, then the people around you, they just see you not eating and like, that's, they just want to feed you. And like, I remember yeah, right. one day, well, this was after Locke died before his funeral, we were at my mom's house and somebody handed me another plate of food. And I remember trying to eat just to like appease the people around me. And just like, finally, like, just like breaking down into tears, like, I can't do this. Like, this makes it worse. And like, like for the first time, yeah, like I had always been a people pleaser and like for the first time recognizing that like, there's no, I can't people please through this. Like, I'm going to have to figure out what it is that I need and I'm going to no. have to just do that whether other people like it or not. Right, right. And it feels kind of selfish, doesn't it? It does. Yes. But it it isn't. It's what you need to do to take care of yourself because you can't, you know, it goes back to when you're on an airplane and they say you got to put your own oxygen mask on before you can help somebody else. You have to think about yourself because you're not good for anyone 
if you aren't taking care of yourself a little bit first. And that is, that's not being selfish. It's just what has to be. And yet you're like, you're still in this like traumatic brain space where there is like very little logical thinking that's happening. Mm -hmm. Like to be able to articulate what it is that you're feeling and what it is that you need is near impossible. Because everyone asks you, what can I do? Yeah. I have no idea what you can do because I don't even know what I can do. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And they do bring a lot of food. (laughs) (laughs) So much food. (laughs) And that's like, in the end, um, you know, I was like, I guess the other people around me need to eat. Like there's crowds of people here. So like, yeah, let's feed them. But even just like the simple things, like the people around me that would hand me a bottle of water rather than a plate of food. Yeah. It, it was so much easier to receive. Like I wasn't feeling more pressure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, just the, the simple, simple little gestures things. of right. just like letting you be where you're at. Uh-huh. We're, we're such a gift in those moments. And and I love the people too, that instead of saying, what can I do for you? Cause you obviously did not know the answer to that. I loved, I, I remember one person that I knew, and I didn't even really know her that well, but she sent me a message and she said, I'm going to Costco. What can I get you? Like, yeah, that was just awesome. Like, (laughs) and I think to myself, well, Peter, Peter loves those big Costco muffins. That would take a lot off of me that I don't have to worry about breakfast. Could Uh you bring him some muffins? There we go. Now there are muffins in my house and I don't have to worry about breakfast for the kids, for either of the kids. And And it just, and I don't even know if I asked for anything other than muffins, but it was just something, I love the way she did it. She said something super specific because if she'd have Mm -hmm. said in that text, even I'm going out, is there anything I can get for you? Absolutely could not have come up with something. But the fact that she gave me a store where she was going and said, and didn't say, can I get you anything? She said, what can I get you? So then it made Uh it seem like, well, she's going to get me something anyway, what might be something that would be useful to me? And it ended right. up, it was muffins. So that was great. You know, it just those practical things are just so, so incredibly helpful. Oh, absolutely. I talk about that in the book that I wrote too, that just like, yeah, those moments, like this is what I can offer. Does that work for you? Or the same, like just the way the phrase it, to phrase it and make it easier to say yes, yes. than to say no, you know, like, do you want me to mow your yard? Well, like, no, I mean. But if they said, I'd like to mow your lawn, what would be a good time for you? You're going to yeah, come up with a time. Right, exactly. But if you say, do you want me to mow your lawn? You'll probably say no. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, and all of the, you know, well-meaning people who give you the, yeah, just call me if you need anything. Well, especially when it's a grief, like there's like, Physically, there's no reason that I can't do any of these like normal everyday self-care things. And there's no way I'm going to call somebody to say, yeah, my, my heart's too broken today. Can you come do some loads of laundry? Like it just wasn't, wouldn't happen. Right. But when people show up with their gifts and make it easier to say yes than to say no, like that kind of support was so appreciated. I learned so much from the people around me that we're able to kind of offer those things. Like, so we, then when we finally had to come back home, yeah, left Spearfish and after Locke's funeral, and then it was time to go back to life. 
it was actually, it was the wife of the surgeon that I was working with at the time. She had called while we were away and, you know, is it okay if we stop in and, and clean your house while you're gone? So same kind of thing, you know, just like we wanted to do this. Is that okay? And did it very delicately, you know, Locke's fingerprints were still on the mirror. His laundry was still in the laundry basket. Yeah. We're like, I'm dreading just like having to step back into life now Mm -hmm. and I walk in the house to find a bouquet of fresh cut lilacs on the table and some fresh fruit and a fresh gallon of milk in the refrigerator so that meant I didn't have to race out to the grocery store to be able to like feed my toddler yeah you know just like such simple gestures that meant so much Mm -hmm. and took such a such a load off those unbearable moments yeah so do you want to talk now about what you've done since Locke's death? You mentioned your book briefly. So just talking about that and about uh, Locke's legacy that you have, just maybe yeah. how some of those things started, because it takes a while to get motivated to do things too. So right in those early days, like I was just desperate for resources. Like, I don't know how I'm going to survive this. Like, I, I don't. I didn't think I knew anybody that had lost children. I like felt so alone yeah. and there's like, there's gotta be something out there now. And South Dakota is big enough as far as space and rural enough, as far as the numbers of people that things like support groups are kind of hard to come yeah. by. I spent a lot of time on the phone, just like trying to figure out what kind of resources were even available like, gosh, it shouldn't have to be this hard to find something to, to help myself through this. I gravitated toward a lot of books, just devoured the stories of parents who had lost kids. So that's one of the things I love about what you're doing here with this podcast is like, this is what my heart needed. And I needed to hear the raw parts of other people's stories to know that people felt like I do and that I was going to be able to survive this. Mm -hmm. And in a way that felt okay, like it didn't mean I was going to be broken and bitter and ruined for the rest of my life. Like I was, I was going to be able to find a way to, to live through this. Yeah, it gives you just a little bit of hope, doesn't it? When you hear other people's stories, and you think, okay, you know, like you now you're thinking, someone listening to this is going, wow, she's made it 14 years. Okay. Okay, it's possible. Maybe I can. Right? It's possible. Right. Uh-huh. And, and it's not a guarantee that you can because really all that it puts in your head is, well, maybe, maybe I can. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it does still doesn't feel possible, but if it's possible. So I had that moment too. So this, the surgeon that I was working with at the time, he was just such a gift in my life at that moment. So he actually had three siblings who were hit by a vehicle. They were pedestrians. And so he was one of eight and three of his siblings died in this car accident. Wow. And I was able to spend some time visiting with his mom. And I remember being in that spot of like all the other hard things that I'd experienced before, like you just give it enough time and it's going to like, yeah. it kind of, it gets better. Yeah. I was in like, when is this going to get better? Cause I can't live like this. And I remember kind of posing that question to her, like, how long is it going to be like this? And I don't remember exactly what she said, but just like helping me shift to see that this is going to be something that you learn to live with. It's not going to be something that goes away. Yeah. And she was able to like walk with me through like 
through their story, through, she told her story, you know, a lot of like what happens here on the podcast, she talked about the depths of her despair and how unbearable it was to leave the house. And, you know, when she finally did, she was writing a check and somebody recognized her last name and like, oh, do you know those kids that, that died in that accident? You know, as if her first brave moment to step outside the house and, uh, you know, so she was able to kind of talk me through those. And yet the woman that was standing in front of me, she was so warm and so sincere and so like loving and joyful, yeah. like it gave me like that first glimpse of hope yeah. that, okay, like if I have to be a bereaved mom, then I want to be a bereaved mom like that. Yeah. And I know it's possible. Right. And so that's like, that's the gift that other bereaved parents gave to me too. So that's, that's the other piece of where with our foundation is I learned very quickly that talking to other bereaved parents just felt different immediately than talking to almost anybody else. Mm -hmm. They just had a different way of asking questions. They had a different, you know, you, you know, that as you start to articulate something, they nod and they know exactly what you're talking about and the depth of it. And there was just such a gift in that like companionship in that space Mm -hmm. of having people that weren't afraid to go there with you yes and so with Locke's legacy then that those became those two things kind of became some of the primary motivators to one like help make it easier for people to find resources Mm -hmm. we put together care packages that we send to South Dakota families that have an unexpected loss of a baby and then do a lot as far as like trying to connect families. So connecting families to others who have had a similar loss. Um, We have a run for their lives event, where it's an opportunity for people to kind of come together with their families and, and meet other families that have had similar losses while they're remembering their children. I love that. Yeah, that's, you know, it's still, it's still a consolation, right? That's, you know, so that's like all of this, this purpose and meaning that we seek to find to just like help you survive it Mm -hmm. is still a consolation. And, and any parent that you talk to that has found purpose out of their, from their loss will tell you if they could give it back to have their child back, like, yep. No questions about it. Right. That's like, as as an athlete, I always hated the consolation prizes, like, you know, like, here's your participation ribbon or whatever, like, that still means I lost, like, that sucks. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, it's a similar kind of thing, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a consolation prize, but it's a consolation nonetheless, like it gives us, it gives us purpose in that pain, it helps make meaning out of what we're experiencing. And that and that shifts it. And isn't that just a beautiful thing when you can get a little bit of meaning out of it? Right. I mean, at the beginning, I didn't want anything good to come of Andy's death. No. I wanted every bit of it to be bad and awful. Because I thought if I acknowledge that there could be some good from this, it seemed like it was somehow dishonoring to him or something. It just seemed like I just don't want anything good to come out of it. Well, Over time, though, that shifts and you realize, yeah, but Andy was a pretty amazing, awesome kid. And I don't want it to all just be bad. I need him to have good continue, right? I don't want his first 14 years to have been good and amazing and had a good impact on other people. But now from August 15th, 2018 onward, everything associated with Andy Larson has to be awful. Like, I don't want that. Right. That's, yeah. 
I've got like, so two thoughts on that, just to kind of tail on what you're saying, like, you know, that, that thought that I had and that, like, if I have to be a bereaved mother, like, so now I'm in the spot, like, I don't get that choice anymore. Yeah. Like that, that has been made for me. I am a bereaved mother. So what am I going to do with that? Yeah. And so that's where then like, okay, well then, then you make meaning and you make purpose and you make somebody else's life better because your child lived. Mm-hmm. And then backing up to just, there were oftentimes there were a number of people that would say to me, like, think of the good things that can come from this, or even, even suggesting that God did that or allowed that for the good that could come from it. Like that created kind of a crisis in my faith, you know, like who wants a God that lets your kid die so that he can make something good from that. Like, And so that too, like created just a real rub there in allowing there to be good things that could come from it. Yeah. That's a struggle for me too. Mm -hmm. Well, so eventually I slowly came around to like understanding that, okay, like God didn't give me these ashes. He didn't, God hates death too. Um, That was not part of his plan. It's something that he allows in our broken world. Yes, but that is not in his perfect will for what he wanted for me. But when I'm in that space, if I can give him my ashes, he will help me create something beautiful from it. So, you know, he didn't give me my ashes so that he could make something beautiful. But if I give him the ashes that I have, that's where his goodness comes through. Oh. That's just beautiful. That's a beautiful thought. I absolutely couldn't agree more. You know, it's, I I love how you said that wasn't really part of his perfect plan for you. It wasn't, you know, it, it, it feels different then isn't to me. It feels different to say God allowed this to happen. Then God made this happen because that was his plan for me. His plan for me, which is to be have this horribleness. Nope, that's not. He can make beauty out of the horribleness and he knew the horribleness was going to happen, but it's a little different thinking about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the so the other thing, as long as we're like talking in that vein, um, the other thing that we hear so often is that, you know, God God took my baby, God needed another angel, yeah. that like that it was an active process of God like removing your child from your life. Yeah. And I had a lot of like anger around that as well. And just this, the struggle with like, do I even want to carry a faith with a God that will take my baby? Like, and then one day it hit me. So that's, I have a pretty strong Catholic background. Uh, My faith was real rocky for a while after Locke died, but I had a moment where it just like, it hit me all at once that God didn't take my baby he gave my baby back to me. Like if eternity was not really an option until Jesus came and did what he did in his passion and death and resurrection, like God hated that we had to experience death so much that he sent Jesus to do his work and open up the gates of heaven so that we could all spend all of eternity together. Like he gave my baby back to me. Um, and that too, like I went from like in an instant from being angry and bitter toward God to being extraordinarily thankful because the only thing that could like, that made it any kind of okay was that this death like wasn't the end of our relationship. It's not permanent in that way, right? That there was hope of heaven Mm -hmm. and 
God, God made that possible. He gave me that hope of heaven and he gave me like the possibility of an eternity mm-hmm. with him. And anyway, so that was kind of a defining moment in changing how I thought about God in that, in that role of, you know, how, how you're processing this death and what it means for your life and um, for your own life and death and eternity. You know, it's like, no matter where you're at, I think in your faith, when you lose a child, it's going to bring you to kind of a crisis of faith and you will redefine, you know, a lot of things that you've carried with you yeah. for a long time or clarify a lot of those things. And when I go back to, to think about that moment that Andy died, I think, well, Andy died and God was there welcoming him home. And at the same moment, sitting next to me, holding me while I cried. Right. Oh, yeah. And if I can picture those two things together instead of an indifferent God who just let this happen or made this happen or whatever. But if I picture it personally, him welcoming Andy and comforting me at that moment. Well, that's a faith I can hang on to. Yeah. Exactly. That's I've spent a lot of time with the scripture readings about Lazarus and, you yeah. know, Jesus showed up after Lazarus died and he wept yeah. with Lazarus's sisters. And like, but if he knew what he was going to do, like, why was he, why was he weeping? And, you know, he was not indifferent to their pain no. and he was, he was weeping with them in their grief and that we as humans have to experience death and, and then, you know, brought Lazarus back to life. Yeah. And, you know, then just as that being, <laughs> so it's interesting, that was actually one of the readings that we chose for Locke's funeral. Uh-huh. And in that space, I was like, okay, like, I just want my baby to come back to life. And yeah. if I know that you can do this, like, do it now. Where yeah. are you? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, just spending time with that over the years and, and, rethinking that Lazarus died again like that that solution was a temporary one in that moment but what he did was set up a permanent solution and a permanent like resurrection for all of us to to be able to experience that you know I didn't get to experience it now like I wanted to in that moment I just wanted my baby back in my lap and there will be a delay but there will be a day that I get to put my baby back in my lap yep there will be and that will be a beautiful day Oh yeah. That's, you know, it's, I have a, I have a good friend that, you know, we talk who also lost a child and we talk a lot about how in many ways now it feels like we've got one foot on earth and one foot in heaven, you know, it just like, it changes how you do life and it changes what matters. And it, you know, knowing that there's something next that's more important than what's happening here. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. So that was kind of a long, a long sidetrack. We started talking about Locke's legacy. Right. So I need you to go back to Locke's legacy in the book a little bit here. <laughs> so with Locke's legacy, we've got then a threefold mission. So one, to provide bereavement support mm-hmm. for families who've lost an infant. Two, to promote some SIDS and safe sleep awareness, which I've been able to work with our South Dakota Department of Health a little bit um, and be on some of the committees there to do some neat things as far as just some safe sleep awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then get to use some of our funds to help contribute to SIDS-related research. You know, there's still so many unknowns about SIDS that being able to help kind of drive the research that that may help give some answers. 
Well, and they are coming. I mean, they are finding out new things all the time, actually. I mean, there's yeah. recently been some kind of genetic kind of stuff thinking that uh -huh. that maybe these kids are a little bit predestined or predisposed, I should say, yeah. predisposed to that. Right. Like certain kids are. And I mean, it'd be good to be able to know that in some ways. Um, it's hard to know yeah. what will all come of it. But there's been a lot of good research for sure. Absolutely. Well, tell us about your book, too. Yeah. So then one of my latest projects was um, just sending a book out into the world. Yeah. So the book is called, so that was launched in June, mm -hmm. um, actually on Lachlan's 15th birthday. Oh, wow. Is when it came out. So yeah. So it was kind of fun to be able to like celebrate his birthday that way. Um, but it's called A Thousand Pounds, Finding the Strength to Live and Love Under the Weight of Unbearable Loss. And this book is really, it's a pretty raw telling of my story and of when Locke died and of what I was thinking and how that all felt. And then kind of the journey of like finding my way to living with that weight. And, you know, so the, the title is set up on um, the premise of an analogy that I used for a long time. And that in the beginning, it feels like somebody dropped a thousand pounds on your chest and you can't think and you can't breathe and you can't move. It's like all crushing, all consuming, but it's not a weight that goes away. It's a weight that little by little, you will learn to carry Yeah, the story on the, how this book came to be. I had ideas for a long time about writing a book, but you know, just the loss of a child is so big. Like what parts of it do you tell and who exactly are you telling the story to? And, you know, so it's kind of lost in the abstract. Like there's just is too much. Yeah. And I have a cousin that she has dreams that sometimes just seem to mean something. She, I think has called three of my pregnancies before I told anybody like, Oh, by the way, you're pregnant and it's a boy. <laughs> okay. I'm telling anybody till next week, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so that's, I was just talking to her. She never makes too much of it. You know, she doesn't, it's not the thing she controls or, you know, she, anyway. So she said, Oh, by the way, I had a dream. You were writing your third book. And I kind of laughed and like, Oh yeah. Like you didn't happen to catch a title and an outline. Did you? And she goes, well, no, not exactly, but one of them was called A Thousand Pounds. And so, like, as soon as she gave me the title, like, I think I sat down later that afternoon and outlined the whole book. Like, it just, like, came to me. I knew exactly what I would write and what that story would look like wow. as soon as I had a title to, to work around. And then it took me about a year and a half to write it. I'd write it in little bits at a time when before my kids would wake up in the morning. And so a lot of little like moments like that kind of affirming moments along the way that told me I was doing something that mm -hmm. was was meant to be that is nice when you get those little affirmations isn't it yeah, absolutely so how many kids now did you go on to have after Locke died we've got four more after Locke wow yeah that's a brave thing yeah. to do too it was scary yeah you know that's I talked to a lot of parents who have lost infants in particular and it seems to go you know kind of either way there are some families that immediately just want to have another baby back in their house back in their arms I fell on the other side of that spectrum and I was petrified yeah. uh, we had had a miscarriage before luck and so you know now I'd had these two loss experiences and I was like I if we have more kids like maybe it's you know, maybe it's not SIDS, but maybe it's, you know, the toddler that gets cancer or the elementary kids that runs out in the road, you know, like yeah. it can be anything. Um, and even up into adulthood, I had done some compassionate friends meetings um, with bereaved parents who had lost 
yeah. like even elderly kids to things like cancer and you know their grief was just as intense as anybody else in the room and like I can't put my heart on the line like that right. and eventually I uh, came back around to the idea that Locke was worth it like if I could go back and choose whether I would keep him in my life and still have to experience his loss or whether I could not have to experience that grief but not have him like I'd pick him you know, without even thinking about it, like he was worth every minute I could have. Right. And so then I like, finally was able to kind of reason through that, okay, if I felt that way about him, I will surely feel that way about any other child that we have. And so that was what it was that gave me the courage to invite more kids into our life. And so yeah, now here we are with four more kids after him, that all like, they love him. And they like they each kind of have almost a almost a relationship with him. They know that somebody is missing. There's somebody that they kind of long for. A lot of them, as they've gone through their preschool years, will say things like, "It's it's hard to hear," but they'll say things like, "Well, when can I die? Because it takes so long. I just want to go to heaven and I want to see Locke." And <laughs> you know, so that's just you know, kind of bittersweet little moments like that with with all of them yeah like uh just hang on for a bit there honey (laughs) (laughs) you have to wait your turn (laughs) me first okay yeah me first (laughs) exactly right exactly right well thank you so much Bree for sharing Locke with us today I so enjoyed hearing about him and learning about him and all that you're doing since what a gift to be able to kind of talk through all of that with you here and share it with other grieving hearts that are trying to figure out how to live this life as a bereaved parent. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful or would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.